I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. When you're reading through the book of Romans and you come to chapter 7 and verses 14 and follows, you tend to do a double take. Because Paul has been so logical in laying out his argument up until this point in time. And then you come to verse 15 and he says, I do not understand. You say, you mean the Apostle Paul doesn't understand something? What doesn't he understand? Well, look at verse 15. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. Paul says, I don't understand what I'm doing. And what's he doing? The rest of verse 15 says, For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. And verse 19 says, For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Paul says, I'm doing what I don't want to do, and I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm not doing that which I wish to do. Instead, I am doing what I hate. Sounds like me describing my golf game. Are you guys in the light out there or not? Can we bring the lights up? I can't see them. Oh, there it is. Okay, never mind. Smile. Okay. Yeah, this, this is Paul speaking in the first person, describing a fierce, personal, internal struggle with sin. This is the civil war within. Now, this is a passage that a lot of Bible teachers are radically divided over. And the question that separates them is this, at what stage in Paul's life is he talking about here? Is this Paul talking about himself before he was a Christian? Or is this Paul describing himself as a Christian? And if he is a Christian, is he talking about himself as a baby Christian or a mature Christian? Is this Paul describing an immature Christian or is this the mature Apostle Paul speaking? Now, I would say that some questions are more important than others, wouldn't you? And I would say that these questions are crucial. Because the way that we answer these questions will lead us to the answer to a related question. And that question is, how can I live a triumphant Christian life? How can I achieve victory over sin? How can I win the civil war within? So let's take a moment at the outset to answer these questions. Question number one. Who is Paul describing here? Is this a Christian or a non-Christian? Now, those who would say this is a non-Christian in chapter 7 would take us back to chapter 6, and they'd really point at the whole chapter, but specifically they would point to verse 17 of Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now the question is, how could Paul say that in chapter 6? And then when we come to chapter 7, notice what he says in verse 14. 
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. And in verse 19, the good that I wish, I do not do. How can Paul say in chapter 6, I'm not a slave to sin, and now in chapter 7 say, I am a slave to sin. And so the conclusion by some is, this has to be a non-Christian. But I would suggest to you that if we look a little closer, we will come to the conclusion that this is not a non-Christian that Paul is talking about here. This is actually a believer. And let me give you some evidence for that. First of all, Paul's opinion of himself. Notice verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And then when you slide down to verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now I would suggest to you that an unbeliever does not say that kind of thing about himself. Before Paul was a Christian, he didn't say, there's no good in me. He didn't say, oh, wretched man that I am. In fact, he tells us what he thought about himself as an unbeliever in Philippians 3, 6. He says, as to righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. You see, Paul was self-righteous and self-confident. Most unbelievers don't even know that they need to be saved. In fact, many unbelievers would say, no, I don't need to be saved. You see, the unbeliever says, I'm not all that committed to doing good, but if you really press me, I'm not that bad. Only a believer can say, I have the desire to do good, but I can't carry it out. And so I've reached the conclusion, there's no good in me. I am a wretched man. I need someone to set me free. Second evidence is his opinion of the law. Notice the end of verse 16. I agree with the law confessing that it is good. The law is good. Verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God. In verse 15, he says, I hate what I'm doing. And again, I would suggest to you, an unbeliever does not delight in the law of God. An unbeliever does not hate sin. In contrast, he loves sin, and he loves the darkness. Thirdly, I would let you notice the change in tense, how Paul switches from past tense to present tense. Go back to verse 9. Speaking about himself here as an unbeliever, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died, past tense. Verse 11, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me, past tense, and through it killed me. This is Paul speaking as an unbeliever. Then when he comes to verse 14, notice what he says. For we know that the, the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, present tense, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, present tense, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing, present tense, the very thing I hate. Paul speaks of himself as an unbeliever, past tense. Now he switches in verse 14 to himself as a believer, and now he's talking in the present tense. 
You see, Paul in verses 7 to 13 is talking about his pre-Christian experience with the law. Now, beginning in verse 14 to 25, he's talking about his present experience with the law as a believer. And then finally, I'd like you to notice the change in tone. In verses 9 to 11, Paul is dead. He says, sin killed me. In verses 14 to 25, Paul is struggling with sin. You see, an unbeliever doesn't have this struggle. He just does what's wrong. And so this must be a believer. You say, well, then how do you explain verse 14 where Paul says, I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Well, go back to chapter 6 with me and look at verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. While it's true that I have died to sin, and while it's true that I am free from sin, sin can still reign in my mortal body. If that were not true, then Paul wouldn't have to give us this exhortation. Paul says, don't let it happen. But I want you to notice where sin wants to reign. Paul says, in your mortal body. And notice where it gets its foothold, through the members of your body. You see, you are a new creature in Christ. You are a new man in Christ, but you are still susceptible to your old nature working through the members of your flesh, your physical body. And that's why when we come to chapter 7 and verse 14, Paul speaks about this as your flesh. And that's why down in verse uh, 24, he calls it the body of this death. You see, as an unbeliever, I was flesh and only flesh, and I lived according to the flesh. Now as a new man in Christ, a spiritual man, there is a conflict going on between the new me and the old me, the new me and my flesh. That's why uh, Paul said in Galatians 5.17, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition. You see, when I was an unbeliever, I didn't have a conflict with my flesh, because that's all I had. That was the sum total of who I was. And so that's why I would say to you that verses 14 to 25 is talking about a Christian because only a Christian could have this struggle. Second question. Since this is a Christian, is this speaking of an immature Christian or a mature Christian? And my answer to that would be real simple. It's speaking about both. Because this passage is speaking about every Christian. This is any Christian at any level of maturity whenever he or she tries to keep the law. This is any Christian at any level of maturity whenever he or she tries to grow by their own effort. You see, Paul is simply illustrating to us here this point. Not only is the law unable to justify a person, but the law is unable to sanctify a person. See, Romans chapter 7 is not somewhere I used to be 
and will never find myself again. That's why Paul, a mature Christian, that's why Paul, the, the outstanding apostle, can say this in the first person present tense. Because the mature Christian knows that Romans chapter 7 is where I will always end up when I don't depend on the Holy Spirit of God. Let me tell you something that a lot of Christians get confused on. Sanctification is not an awareness of how good I'm becoming. Sanctification is a growing awareness of how sinful I really am and how desperately I need to be constantly depending upon Jesus Christ. So let me tell you how I see this passage. I see verses 14 to 25 describing a Christian trying to keep the law. And the conclusion is, I can't do it. It's a battle I cannot win. Let me ask you this. Can an unbeliever keep the law? No. Why not? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 8 and verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. You see, an unbeliever in his flesh cannot keep the law of God because he's too weak. Well, let me tell you something else. Your flesh is just as weak today as a believer as it was when you were an unbeliever. Because flesh is flesh. An unsaved person can't keep the law in his flesh, and neither can you. It's impossible. You see, the flesh just rebels against the law of God. That was true of you when you were an unbeliever. It's still true of your flesh today. You see, there's, an, there's a critical ingredient missing in Romans chapter 7. You know what it is? When we come to chapter 8 and verse 2, notice what he says. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The thing that's missing in chapter 7 is the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in Romans 7 14 to 25. When we come to chapter 8, guess what? He's mentioned 19 times. You see, chapter 7 is a Christian trying to do it on his own. And all he winds up with is verse 24, O wretched man that I am. Until he falls on his face and he says, Holy Spirit, you take over. Holy Spirit, you live your life through me. You see, the end of chapter 7 is a Christian trying to do it on his own. And that's why he's not only in a battle, which we're all in, he's losing. He says in verse 15, I am not practicing what I would like to do. I am doing the very thing I hate. He says in verse 19, for the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. He's not only in a battle, he's losing. But when you come to chapter 8, and the Holy Spirit comes into the picture, we read in verse 37 that we overwhelmingly conquer through Him. So Romans chapter 7 is a believer trying to live his life under the law. And the conclusion is, you can't do it. Yet even as I say that, so many of us waste so much of our time trying. We're trying in our own flesh 
to attain the standards of God and we're totally frustrated because we can't do what we want to do and we do do what we don't want to do and we struggle and struggle and struggle instead of submitting ourselves to the Spirit of God. See, I would suggest to you that the first step to holiness, the first step to victory over sin is an honest, humble acknowledgement of the hopeless evil of our flesh. You see, if I am not willing to admit that, then God can't help me. If I am not brought to the constant awareness of the worthlessness of my flesh, then God's Spirit can't work in me. Some of us aren't living holy lives, and you know why? Because we have too high an opinion of ourselves. Some of us us aren't living holy lives, and you know why? Because we have too high an opinion of our flesh. You want to live the Spirit-filled life? You've got to fall on your knees with Paul and say, Wretched man that I am, in my flesh there is no good thing. Holy Spirit, you take over. I can't do it, only you can. You see, I believe you've got to come to Romans chapter 7 before you can get to Romans chapter 8. You'll never learn the Spirit-filled life until you come to the awareness of the wretchedness of your flesh. Until you come to the awareness that your flesh, you and your strength, cannot cope with sin. Because you see, you, you will never experience the Spirit-filled life while you're still under the delusion that you can do it yourself. And that's the major lesson that Paul illustrates for us from his first-hand experience in these verses. And with that long introduction, I want to go through these verses, but I want to go through them rather rapidly because Paul basically in this passage says the same thing over three times. He gives us three dirges, three Three times he laments the fact that he can't do what he wants to do. And I see them really as three cycles. Each time Paul is going to tell us the same thing. He's going to tell us his predicament, his perplexity, and his presumption. Then he's going to go back through that cycle again. He's going to keep going through that cycle all the way through this passage. And I think the reason that he's going through these cycles is to illustrate for us the fact that he's not getting anywhere. He's just spinning his wheels. He's going through the same cycles three times over. Then we're going to get to the end of the passage in verses 24 and 25, and he's going to break the cycle. Notice cycle number one. It's verses 14 to 17. First, he gives us the predicament, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. The law is spiritual. I'm of flesh. Now that's an obvious predicament. Paul says, I'm set up for failure. I've got a spiritual law and a fleshly me. That's the predicament. Second, we see the perplexity in verses 15 and 16. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. Paul says, I don't understand what I'm doing. I know the law is good, 
and I'm trying as hard as I can to do it, but I'm not. You see, he's perplexed. He's in a predicament. He's in perplexion. And thirdly, we see the presumption, verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. You say, did I read that right? Did Paul say, I'm not doing it. It's sin in me. Is Paul saying, I'm not really the one sinning? I mean, this is an interesting verse. Paul says, it's not me doing it, it's sin in me. You say, well, that sounds like a cop-out. Is Paul schizophrenic? No. You see, he's simply recognizing the source of the problem. He's saying the source of the problem is not the real me. It's not the inner me. It's not the new me. The real me desires to obey God. That's why I've got a conflict to begin with. The source of the problem is sin which indwells me. It's the old me. It's my flesh. It's my fallen sin nature. He comes to that presumption and guess what? He goes right back into the cycle again. Cycle number two is verses 18 to 20. First of all, the predicament. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now this is a verse you need to underline because this is a fundamental truth that we all need to grasp. How much good is in my flesh? Zero. And since that's true, then nothing good comes from my flesh. And so it's not surprising that even though I wish to do good in the power of my flesh, I never accomplish it. That's the predicament. And then he gives the perplexity again in verse 19. For the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. I want to do good, but I'm not. I don't want to do evil, but I am. That's the predicament. And then thirdly, he gives the presumption in verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. He reaches the same presumption he did in verse 17. The source of the problem is sin which dwells in me. And then we come to cycle number 3, verses 21 to 24. The predicament, verse 21... I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. Now, Paul has been going through this cycle long enough now that the predicament becomes a principle. I've seen this, I've proved it out in my life, and now he says it's a principle. Evil is present in me even though I wish to do good. And then secondly, we see the perplexity in verses 22 and 23. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. My inner man delights in the law of God, but the members of my body are not cooperating. They've got a mind of their own. That's the predicament. And then the presumption is verse 24. Wretched man that I am. 
Now, this is even more intense than what what he said in the previous cycles. Paul says, I am wretched. I am desolate. I am hopeless. I am doomed to failure. You say, well, those are pretty strong words for a Christian to say. Well, let me suggest this to you. Whenever we fight the spiritual battle in our own strength, we lose. And when we continue to lose, we come to this hopeless conclusion. I'm wretched. I can't do it. I can't accomplish it. There's no good in me. But guess what? Verse 24 is exactly where God wants us to be. Because in the struggle, in your own strength, to live the Christian life, God wants you to arrive at the point where you realize you can't do it. God wants you to come to the end of yourself. And that's why at this point, I love what Paul does next. Because he doesn't return to the futile cycles. Instead, he cries out for deliverance. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now notice something. He doesn't say, what will set me free? He's not asking, what do I have to do to get out of this? He says, who will set me free? See, Paul is not looking for directions. He's looking for deliverance. And the answer comes immediately in verse 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you get that? As soon as I come to the point of hopelessness, As soon as I come to the point of helplessness, as soon as I come to the end of myself, I can rejoice because I found the answer. And the answer is in chapter 8 and verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit sets me free from that principle that's at work in my life. And then look at verse 4 of chapter 8. He says, In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What we can't do ourselves, the Spirit of God does in us. You see, the solution is always found when I quit trying to do it in my own flesh and I walk in the Spirit. You know, a lot of Christians are standing around grunting and groaning and failing in frustration because they're trying to keep the law in their own strength. They're trying to keep the law in the power of their own flesh. And this passage tells us that you can love the law of God You can delight in the law of God. You can cherish the law of God, but you cannot keep it. There's only one way the law of God is accomplished in you, and that's by the Spirit of God. You heard about the do-it-yourselfer who went to the hardware store and asked for a saw to cut some firewood. Salesman pulled down a chainsaw and said, you know, Stan Crater was just in and brought this chainsaw, and it's the finest one they make a steel chainsaw top of the line. He said, it's guaranteed to cut ten cords of wood a day. The guy said, I'll take it. So 
So he left the store. Several days later, he came back, haggard and exhausted with a chainsaw in his hand. He said, something's got to be wrong. He said, I could only cut three cords of wood a day with this thing. Well, the salesman said, let me try it. And he pulled the cord to start the motor and went, vroom! And the guy said, what's that sound? See, you are a chainsaw, and the Holy Spirit is the power. But you will never experience the power of the Holy Spirit until you come to the end of yourself. Let me ask you a personal question. Have you experienced the frustration of Romans chapter 7? If you're a Christian, I'm sure you have. Because we all have and we all still do. We all know what it's like to aim for the stars and hit the dust. And then get discouraged and then start making resolutions. And then start failing even more. And becoming totally frustrated. You see, that's what Romans 7 is all about. It's letting you know that the law in and of itself was never intended to change your life. There's only one thing that can change your life, and that's God Himself through His Spirit. One of the most important lessons you will ever learn is that you cannot live the Christian life in your own power. The only way to win is to let God's Spirit live it through you. The only way to get to the victory of Romans chapter 8 is to experience the frustration of Romans chapter 7. I counted 33 I's in chapter 7. In fact, it may be an interesting endeavor for you to go through chapter 7. Just circle all the times that Paul says I in there. See, in Romans chapter 7, Paul has an I problem. But when you come to chapter 8, there are only two I's in the whole chapter. Verse 18 says, I consider. And verse 38 says, I am convinced. In verse 18, he says, I consider my present sufferings to be nothing in light of the glory that's going to be revealed. And in in verse 38, he says, I am convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God. You see, that's it. That's the only part I have in it. I consider and I'm convinced. And God does the rest. I'm going to ask the praise team to come and lead us in what I want to just be a closing prayer in essence because they're going to lead us in that chorus again, Jesus, draw me close. When you come to Romans chapter 7 and you realize you cannot do it yourself, the only answer is to let Him take over. And so let's stand together and make that our prayer today. Lord, You take over. Draw me close to You and You live Your life through me.